0: Alrighty, we are back. Welcome, one and all. It's that time again. I'm sure uh, all of you wait with bated breath for your opportunity to quote, call in. There's nothing better, nothing better in the entire world than participating on a fine summer's evening in one of our call-in session. So that's me just killing time before Richard Hanania gets in the room, which I'm sure will happen relatively quickly. And there he is. Hello, Richard.
1: Hi, Mike. How are
0: you? Okay. Anything uh, interesting going on that we can cover in this small talk portion before diving into the issues of the day?
1: Uh, No, I would have brought up the issues of the day, so I guess we can just (laughs) clarify that.
0: Okay. Um, Well, uh, right before we started, you actually just sent me an interesting article on um, apparently Zelensky's first major PR crisis within Ukraine since the war started. Mm -hmm. And maybe crisis is overstating it, but there are – Somewhat notable figures who have been critical of him over the past day or so because he justified to the Washington Post his decision in the run-up to the war to not transmit the warnings of U.S. officials, U.S. intelligence that were being given to him about the war being imminent. And he said that it was because... Uh, if he had done so, Ukraine would have lost, you know, seven billion dollars or something in economic activity. And you know, from my own standpoint, um, and maybe this was uh, misguided on my part, but it was hard to reconcile before the war started. Uh, Zelensky's adamant denials that these predictions about a war being, you know, around the corner uh, were accurate. So it wasn't just that he declined. I mean. They didn't really get into this in the Washington Post uh, article where he was quoted, but it wasn't just that Zelensky denied or, or that he declined to communicate these warnings to, uh, that were coming from the U.S. to the people of Ukraine. It was that he actually adamantly denied them. Um, and sometimes his denials of the veracity of these warnings were uh, verging on contemptuous uh, m- meaning, he was expressing contempt for uh, outside media and governments uh, for stoking a panic. He would, he said, um, something like that. Anyway, uh, and yeah, I mean that that uh, that dimension was why, uh, at least a p- part of why I was fairly skeptical of the. Uh, truth value of those prognostications in the, in the run-up to the war. And um, I also know that it wasn't just Zelensky who was making these denials. Um, it was Zelensky's – I mean, Zelensky's the head of a party in Ukraine, right? So it was also people in the Ukraine uh, legislature because I, before the war, I actually interviewed a Ukraine uh, parliamentarian and uh, this was basically the party line that the – Warnings coming from the U.S. were hysterical. They were irresponsible. They were reckless. They were damaging to Ukraine's economy. And um, and basically the, the prospect of a war was actually very remote. This is what they said. This is what the, the parliamentarian actually directly told me more or less. Um, and so uh, now for Zelensky, you know, a couple of months on, to be uh, giving a defense of his conduct uh, to 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 uh, generate some, I guess, political uh, consternation at, at within Ukraine is, you know, moderately interesting. Although, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's one of the greatest sins that could have been committed. Because I mean, what what would have really been done that that differently if he had conveyed these. Warnings. Um, I guess it's more it's more it's more notable just in the sense that you know Zelensky's had this like uh, saintly image uh, since the war started, where you know political dissension has really you know within Ukraine, as best we could tell, has generally been uh, subordinated to the necessity of backing Zelensky. Um, So you know maybe potentially what this could signify is that you know that. Dynamic is not going to be sustainable forever, so maybe there's now the, these first inklings of some more you know, internal uh, dissension, uh, and whether that could complicate the war effort or the relationship with the U.S. going forward, don't know. But anyway, that's my uh, initial thought. Anyway.
1: Well, did you read the longer article that this uh, in Washington, this latest Washington Post article was based? Yeah, on? I did. Yep. And I, so I didn't recognize from this art, this new article, the original article because it doesn't sound like the new article makes it sound like. As Zelensky was like in the other article saying, oh, like, I knew the war was coming. I knew Biden was right. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I just I just misled people. He didn't. That's not what the original article said. The original article basically said, like, that's his reason for not panicking people. But like they really were. They it made it sound like they, the Ukrainians really were skeptical um, that there was going to be a Russian invasion. So I, I don't know. I mean, they took they, they I guess they latched on to the argument that, you know, he could have, I guess, told people to take it more seriously, in which case, you know, they would have uh, taken more precautions, they would have made more preparations. I mean, the the you know the article notes, like, if they really thought it was coming at that moment, I mean, they could have, they could have, you know, done more to prepare. Um, so, yeah, I, I think this is, I think this is, um, I don't know, I, I think it's, I think it's sort of, they're, they're taking this, I think, you, like, Zelensky's trying to justify like what he you know what he did or what he didn't do he's like you know throwing everything he's saying oh you know he's you know he's he's trying to make him i mean he doesn't want to look like i think it makes it's better for him he thinks probably in his head or at least he thought uh to say that you know he was you know he, it was a smart strategy instead of just like saying he did it's like admitting he didn't know what he was talking about so just saying oh I, I, I didn't want to panic people and this is the only way we could have you know held on um but then you know it looks like it didn't work out for it because people saw that and they're like, oh wait a minute, you you uh, you know you let us get invaded un- unprepared um, because you know you wanted because you know you thought it was you thought we couldn't handle the truth. So uh, yeah, it's, I mean it's it's not that important. They, I think what's interesting um is the like it's, you know it's a crack in the armor it's like you know Zelensky. Yeah. is he gonna like stay stay this god within ukraine forever is he always gonna have like a sky high approval rating and is he always going to be in control and people are always going to listen to him uh maybe not you know you don't know how things are going to go as the war goes on
0: yeah uh, what, what did you make of this article uh overall it was very very long and you know if people haven't seen it the headline is road to war US struggle to convince allies and Zelensky of risk of invasion it's basically just a chronology of when supposedly you know the Biden administration became aware of the potential for an invasion of Ukraine by Russia and what steps they took to try to convince uh, Zelensky and uh, EU countries and uh, others of the uh, veracity of the intelligence that they were getting. You know, uh, one thought that I had was that clearly this uh, article is framed in such a way as to portray the Biden administration in the most, in the best possible light. At least in the sense that, you know, they were they had presciently. Started warning about the war early on. That they uh, they knew that their intelligence was rock solid, and it was only a matter of convincing uh, skeptical partners that they needed to uh, follow the U.S. And you know there are the officials depicted in the article are kind of uh, you know framed as being you know uh, as being you know having a heavy burden to. Contemplate what their next move should be, and uh, clearly, the uh, Washington Post articles got high-level uh, access for it. The Washington Post reporters, rather, got high-level access for the ar- article. Jake Sullivan is quoted on the record in it, and uh, other you know high-level officials are quoted uh, anonymously. Um, but to, to me, it seems like a, 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 so you got to think then that they're pretty confident, meaning those officials that they're. The, the ensuing article was going to be relatively charitable, um, and uh, so. It, but it seems like a, an attempt to, you know, well, like when when the, when the war first started, immediately you saw this almost celebratory attitude among certain in certain quarters that U.S. intelligence had been vindicated, and so they finally put to rest, you know, the demons of Iraq. And uh, now the U.S. intelligence intelligence services on a very consequential geopolitical matter had officially rehabilitated the reputation for utmost uh, accuracy and um, and basically uh, demonstrated that critics or skeptics were so totally off the mark that they were the ones who were uh, discredited. And I'm not denying here that – to some extent, the predictions by the U.S. intelligence services of Russian uh, intentions were were accurate. Uh, but it seems like um, you know this this article is just one in a series of attempts to sort of almost mythologize that uh, intelligence collection and dissemination tactic that the Biden administration undertook is this you know new uh, gold standard and to um, you know, put it in the most possible, in, in the most favorable possible light to, uh, in, in the longer term, kind of uh, revive the and solidify the reputation of both the intelligence agencies themselves and also, you know, maybe even Biden and his uh, senior officials. So there's there seems to be a bit of a self interested motive as I was reading this and why there would have been such high level participation in the article by Biden officials. Um, but that's kind of that's and that's I, I also acknowledge this is sort of a meta point but i'm uh, wondering if you you got this a similar sense when reading it
1: yeah i mean it was the, the basic story i mean i think it had some like little vignettes that were interesting like you know supposedly blinken with you know this is uh, very shortly before the war starts blinken is there with lavrov at some you know conference or summit or something and they're like uh They're like off to the side, and he tells. (laughs) It's so funny. It's like who knows how this really went, but you know, supposedly Blinken goes, "Tell me, uh, Sergey." Um, is this about you know? Is this about Na- is this really about NATO or is it about uh, is it about you know Russian nationalism? You don't think Ukraine is like a real country and Lavrov like you know turns around and walks out basically is, is what the story is. And this is like this is very late this is very late in the game when this happened.
0: Or Blink uh, here the the quote that supposedly uh, Blinken said to Lavrov was was uh, Sergey tell me what it is you're really trying to do. <laughs> so clear, clearly, Blinken must have participated in this article as well because the the idea of this anecdote was that after they had done a bilateral meeting with their staff, Blinken and Lavrov went into like a side room one on one, and yet somehow we have a quote from their exchange. So I don't know who else would have yeah. fed that information to the Washington Post. I kind of doubt that uh, Lavrov
1: did. Yeah. So the I mean the other a lot of the but the the main story. I mean, the, you know the sort of the the larger narrative. I mean, it's the same one we had in the months before the war. I was paying attention to the reporting. A lot of this stuff was, you know, was basically you know they they were uh, anonymous reports about what was going on behind the scenes, and there were you know what the sides were saying publicly. And basically, there's two uh, times in the story with you know there's two times in the story. Once Biden when uh, the Russians, you know, they say it's NATO, and then the U.S. changes the subject and say we could talk about other things. So once, I think, is on the phone when Biden and Putin are talking um, one-on-one, and basically, you know, Putin says something about NATO, Biden says, you know, um, you know, Biden says... Uh, uh, like if we could talk about you know troop placements and stuff like that they just you know wouldn't negotiate wouldn't talk about nato and then uh wendy sherman uh was talking to somebody on the russian side i forget i forget who exactly um it might have i, I but yeah i don't think it was lavrov but it was somebody no on the it would have been like um
0: lavrov's deputy or something because it was the article says it was sherman's uh counterpart and sherman was deputy secretary of state
1: uh huh, and say and and it's pretty much the exact same thing, and then like you know they go then it's like oh and then American officials knew that like Russians weren't serious about negotiations and it's like no I mean they they clearly told you you know what this was you know what, what, like it's at least worth trying right I mean they, they, this was this was the thing they would never. uh conclusively closed the door on NATO. I mean, I believe that by the end, by like February, like Putin had decided to invade, you know, maybe earlier. Uh, but there was, there was months and months leading up to that where, you know, right. there, there was there was the terms that they could have at least began negotiations on, and unfortunately they never did. Right. And,
0: you know, you could imagine just as easily making a case that if anyone wasn't interested in diplomacy... It was the U.S. I mean, I'm not necessarily endorsing this case as 100% true because I don't know the full yeah, I mean, the of Russians kind of went on. But if the U.S. is preemptively saying that it's just a hard no on the number one ask being given to them by Russia, then they're the ones foreclosing on negotiations as well. Uh, but, you know, because Russia is obviously just uh, – Painted as in the, in the wrong, you know, as though it, with that being an article of faith, um, you know, they're, they're the ones who apparently don't have any good faith interest in negotiation, even though it was the U.S. who you know, publicly and privately were saying that they were not going to budge one inch on the most fundamental issue that was ostensibly being negotiated.
1: Yeah, you could have read the exact same article in like a Russian, you know, Russian state media, and they could have, yeah, come to the opposite conclusion that the Russians kept asking them, like, what they wanted, and the U.S. wouldn't negotiate. They were just, you know, uh, they wouldn't, you know, they were just uh, unwilling to settle the conflict. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's unfortunate. But, yeah, I think, you know, I, 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 think, you know I, I don't doubt like this American story because I don't think it makes them look that good. Um, I think to them, it's just like, it's so, NATO is so sacred that they that they think this doesn't make them look bad, that they're, like, it's the most reasonable thing in the world. Like, oh, that wouldn't even be serious, like, to negotiate on NATO expansion. So, of course, like, they expect, like, you know, their readers uh, to read that and just be like, oh, of course, you know, they're the reasonable ones. But if you, you know, if you have a different perspective, uh, the U.S. looks pretty unreasonable.
0: Yeah, another reason why I would object to the crystallization of this mythology as to what happened in the run-up to the war is that a central plank of that mythology is that the U.S. intelligence was just 100% perfect, rock-solid, you know, this great triumph of the agencies involved with the Biden administration. Um, I would object to that, at least in part, because let's just assume that it wasn't 100% confirmed, by Russia but that an invasion was going to happen until relatively late later on you kind of suggested that that's what you tend to think so no final decision was made on launching the war until let's say February 2022 if that's the case then it could almost have been that in making these definitive proclamations that a war was certain that the U.S. actually, you know, took proactive action that um, accelerated that final decision, or contributed in any way to that final decision being made. Or, in other words, stuff could have been done to make it so that some other outcome happened rather than the launching of the invasion. Uh, but because they had this, they took on this public diplomacy strategy that we're, they're now celebrating as, you know, amazingly successful. That actually contributed to um, you know either whether it's poisoning the diplomatic environment or um, kind of pushing uh, Russia into a corner where you know their incentive to invade act and to you know pull the trigger became greater. Um, this this mythologization now seems to absolve U.S. actors of any responsibility for what they may have done. At various stages to actually avert that worst case scenario outcome, and it's also possible that the strategy they did undertake might have actually uh, contributed to the worst case scenario outcome.
1: Yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to say. I mean, I was wondering what they were doing by announcing all this, and I think it makes sense because either way they would have looked good. So, if Russia did invade, they could say we predicted that. If Russia didn't invade, they could say. Uh, we scared them off, or you know, maybe they would maybe they would look uh stupid, but I you know, whether it poisoned the well for the uh negotiations, I I don't know. Like, it's like you know, I think you had to negotiate, like, you know, there's they weren't willing to talk about the thing that the Russians cared about. So, whether they announced you know they were going to invade or they didn't announce they were going to invade, Russia thought Ukraine was worth fighting for, the U.S uh wouldn't negotiate on the uh major issue they probably did make it harder i mean they the u.s probably actually did make it harder now that i think about it because you know it's like you give a concession to putin when he's about to invade right that's much harder to do than if like it's not on the front pages um and then you just have you know you you prod Zelensky and tell him you know make some kind of agreement or something so i think i you know now that i think about it i think you're i think you're right i think the motivation here is to make themselves look good you're right i think i think this is their sort of their vindication for um uh, their vindication for like WMDs and you know RussiaGate, getting things wrong in the past. You know they got something right. big and they got it right. You know to their credit, they they did get they did have a you know accurate uh, prediction. But whether that whether announcing it and jumping up and down and screaming about it, whether that you know uh, helped things or made war less likely, yeah, probably it probably didn't. Yeah, so uh, I mean, think of it this way:
0: when it first started being trumpeted by U.S officials, that an invasion was on the horizon. Generally, it wasn't said that an invasion may happen or there's X percentage chance that it will happen. It was generally stated, I mean, I'd have to go review and look at the exact wording, but my memory is that those predictions were stated as a certainty like it, it, it was said no, that an invasion so. will happen i don't
1: think so i think it was we, just a matter of when the only thing that was uncertain was a matter of when it would happen no, no, i if. remember i remember they would ask biden do you think putin made his final decision do you remember this they kept asking about it like for a long time he would say no 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 and then he didn't say yes until i think like sometime in february uh so he wouldn't say that putin made his final decision um yes yeah, so I, I think they left it open that it could it could change the whole time Um,
0: I don't know. Aside from whatever Biden said personally, the way that the intelligence estimates were presented um, beginning last, I think, November or December was that the... Invasion was going to happen, um, and it, the only the only uncertainty was exactly
1: when. Like they were, I think no, there was. A, yeah, I have, have can, to look it up. But I, the, the, I don't think the, we They brush aside what Biden, was. I mean, Biden is, you know, the administration, so you can't brush that aside. Okay, but,
0: okay, Well, that that was sort of like a technical point into what I was going to what I was going to say, which is that. Early on, the U.S. already to some degree began to stake its reputation on the accuracy of the prediction that Russia would invade Ukraine, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to – so that was already like an initial dynamic going into these negotiations, and so in order to – so now they have to present a version of history that it was just, just inevitable that Russia was always going to invade, right? And nothing could have been done to avert that. But in order to believe the version of history that's more or less being presented in this Washington Post article, which is very flattering to you know, Jake Sullivan and all these people, you would have to – I would also think accept that if the Biden administration had responded to that ultimatum that was put to them in December – and agreed to the key demand, which is uh, that Ukraine not join NATO or it be taken off the, t- the table that Ukraine could ever join NATO, and also like a revision of the force posture in some of these Eastern European countries like, uh, you know, Bulgaria, Poland, or whatever. You have to believe that even a concession of that order would not have altered Russia's behavior at all. And that just doesn't seem plausible to me. I mean, it seems plausible to me that if the U.S. actually had been more conciliatory in that area and uh, offered a concession that at least approached what Russia was asking for, then that may very well have altered the course of the war. But now we're getting this, again, version of history that makes it seem like there there, there was no um, – the, the negotiations along those lines would have made no difference
1: at all. I, I agree with you, but I think that's even with the official narrative of history that's like still consistent with what you're, what you say and what, what, you know what I think too. Um, in their narrative of history, they would refuse to talk to NATO, talk about NATO, right? Like they wouldn't even think about it. Um, and they're trying the whole time, so they don't think it's you know in the narr- in the uh, quote unquote official narrative. They don't think it's you know they they didn't think it was inevitable the whole time. They were still trying to find a way around it. But just you know the Russians, you know they wouldn't they weren't reasonable. But if you read it, I mean it's them them that, that they don't want to talk about the uh, the main issue. Um, so I, yeah, this I don't think the official narrative was like inconsistent with with any of that. I don't think you know they ever said it was. Inevitable. I mean, they, they would, you know, the Biden thing is important. I mean, solve it. I mean, and so their idea was like, you know, Putin didn't decide. You know, there, there was like, it was like, it, I mean, I think the, the perspective they were taking was like, okay, we have our like absolute value, like, which is like NATO, like, you know, is an open door and anyone could come into NATO. And then if like, if that's not, if like Putin can't like live with that, then, you know, he just wants war. And but let's try like other stuff, and then if we try this other stuff um, to negotiate on these uh, other other issues, then we'll see if he's serious, right? So that's that's their perspective. I mean, but and so like from their perspective, like oh, it was inevitable because Russia, you know, uh, couldn't accept like just the the sacred, you know, our sacred value. Uh, but if you don't hold that as a sacred value, then it's like no, it, it, like me you think it could have it could have been prevented. Like maybe maybe if you even ask them, like. If you had said no NATO, like, well, I don't know what they they would say, but it's like, it's so unthinkable that like, nobody asks them that question Like, you know, I wish somebody would ask them, like, if you just said uh, Ukraine will never be in NATO um, and maybe like, you know, Russia can have like the territories that are, uh, uh, that have already occupied before February 24th, would Putin have invaded? Like nobody even thinks to ask that because that's so unthinkable. Um, and so like, we don't even know if that's like part of the official narrative
0: yeah i mean the, the the thought experiment that i've offered at various times more early on when the war around when the war first started but i thought the thought experiment is you know at least according to these people who think that the nato open door policy is so inviolable is um if you knew to so stipulate that you know for certain that if the u s did give a concession around Ukraine and NATO, meaning that it guaranteed ironclad in writing whatever that Ukraine would not join NATO, um, would you accept that deal if it meant the prevention of the war? Because, you know, that kind of hones in on like, what is your overriding principle here? Is it war prevention or is it maintaining this, uh, you know, strange principle of uh, a permanent you know, never-ending open-door policy, quote-unquote, with um, with Ukraine's NATO accession. And even – and, uh, you know, if you say no, you wouldn't accept that deal, then you're saying you're willing to launch a catastrophic – you're willing to at least countenance the initiation of a catastrophic war, all the casualties, all the economic disruption, simply in service of maintaining this – sort of arcane principle that not that, you know, most people don't really care probably if Ukraine can technically have the ability to enter NATO, you know, in 10 years. Uh, But they they do care if if you have these giant economic ramifications and if, you know, know, war breaks out in Europe. Um, And so, I mean, I would contend that if you're not willing to take that deal then there has to be something fairly blinkered about your your moral calculus because you're so kind of in enmeshed in this you know ideology of you know the western alliance system and you know NATO's role within it that you're uh, you would accept such you know carnage just to preserve that um, and and even in um, even in that Washington the, the long Washington Post article there's a point where uh, Biden is apparently on the phone with Putin and he says to him right. – oh. he says to him something that we heard a lot around that time, which is that there's, there's, there's uh, no chance that Ukraine will be joining NATO anytime soon. Yeah, it's, or, so it's so, so
1: weird.
0: So then why didn't – why, why couldn't that be formalized into a written assurance? I mean nobody I ever because, explains that and nobody in the media has the yeah. you know, presence of mind or, or uh, instinct to ask anyone in a position of power that question.
1: Yeah, you're right. It's very strange. That's also part of the story. I mean, they would say this publicly publicly, Uh, Two right, it's like it's like what are they playing the log game? Like okay, like you're not gonna join NATO today. I think you know having I think having the NATO option I think makes them you know I think having that option out there I think influences Ukraine. So I think they think it keeps the morale. They thought it would keep the morale up in Ukraine. It would give Ukraine something to shoot for. Like Ukraine wouldn't just give up and like be friends with Russia again. I think it was maybe something like that where like you know you had to like keep the hope alive. Uh, for Ukraine to keep moving you know towards the west, um,
0: and just, just just by the way, just as a, just as a, for factual clarification so uh, this is december third two thousand and twenty one Washington Post got the of course the first leak around russia 's war plans from u s intelligence and here 's the headline russia planning massive military offensive against Ukraine involving one hundred and seventy five thousand troops. Uh, U.S. intelligence has found the Kremlin is planning a multi-front offensive as soon as early next year, involving up to 170,000, 175,000 troops, according to U.S. officials, etc. So, th- I mean, there there wasn't a whole lot of qualification as to whether the invasion was going to happen, happen, which only gets to my point of U.S. officials were already kind of staking their reputation on the these predictions being borne out and you do have to wonder what effect that might've had on the willingness of, you know, Biden officials to actually engage in real diplomacy that maybe could have thwarted the war because if they did thwart thwart the war in a diplomat use in a diplomatic, um, arrangement, then, you know, that could make the, uh, intelligence officials who, who furnish these leaks, uh, Maybe ha- have their credibility question because it was portrayed. I mean, maybe there's some ambiguity given that they're just leaks, and you know, it depends on how the Washington Post and others frame it to some extent. But I mean, it could have, it could have, uh, if if the war never happened, then you could see this being uh, put into the category of like you know WMDs or something as a as a false uh, prediction. But so it, it's a it seemed like it had to have been a factor, meaning in terms of the this idea of the, of, that we need to preserve our credibility around this prediction to some extent.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, I think we've, I think these are topics we've sort of, yeah. You know, yeah. Talked about
0: a lot. yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, did you, uh, did you get a chance to read the, uh, Mearsheimer essay? Yeah, I did. Um, okay. Yeah. So, uh, John Mearsheimer, who I would think that most people listening to this are probably at least roughly familiar with, um, he uh, he had an essay in Foreign Affairs uh, yesterday, and you know when uh, when Mearsheimer speaks on the topic of Ukraine, I think pretty much everybody listens. Or everybody who's you know sort of invested in the issue seems to listen, whether they agree with him or not, because he's a extremely influential uh, figure, and um, if you're more uh, of a mindset like uh, maybe me or, or Richard, you probably would tend to agree with him. And um, I, I, I read what he says and listen to what he uh, says, not solely because I tend to agree with him, but because his warnings on the subject of Ukraine have been very prescient dating back years. I mean, there's a uh, uh, there's a column from 2014 that he wrote for the New York Times, uh, but headlined something like, quote, don't arm Ukraine, and his chief reason for counseling the U.S. not to arm Ukraine is that because it would um, probably eventually lead to war. <laughs> so, uh, Mirsham was one of the few people who were making that argument very early on, when he, even just during the period when the Obama administration was just contemplating arming Ukraine—that so wasn't even happening yet at that time. Um, and uh, you know, he's given many commentaries uh, al- along those lines. Since, um, but he has a he has a new essay where he makes pretty stark uh, a new round of stark predictions, and he said this in various forms before uh, this essay was published. But he's basically saying that um, conventional wisdom right now is vastly underrating the potential that there could be another phase of fairly uh, of drastic escalation in the war, and that could take. Um, Take the form of direct U.S. military intervention, uh, NATO intervention, um, Russia intervening in additional countries, um, or a nuclear exchange of uh, various degrees of of severity. Um, And, uh, you know, I think at the very least, Mearsheimer is correct in diagnosing a flaw in conventional wisdom right now, which I think just because of the, this war grinding on now for many months and at various times it fades into the background. Um, you, you do see an underrating of the potent, that potential for escalation and even within like the pro-Ukraine online community which I tend to be somewhat familiar with because they uh, like to make their views known to me directly and not in not the most uh, friendly terms often. Um, but even within like, you know, that the, these you know, think tank crowds and Whatever, uh, it's pretty much conventional wisdom that the U.S. Uh, must not allow itself to be constricted by you know f- uh, unwarranted fears of escalation, and they'll they'll say that you know Putin's warnings are hollow uh, on on this score because he uh, said that some escalation might happen if Finland and Sweden join NATO, but then. They started the process of joining NATO and nothing happened. Like that's their counter-argument as to why nobody should be concerned about escalation anymore. Um, so stuff like that pretty much has congealed into conventional wisdom, I think uh, more or less. And I, I actually think that um, with a war, with the war being in a, in a period of less intense focus, that actually make may make it more likely that there is some escalation that it would have been earlier on when the focus was intense because, you know, the, um, Incremental uh, additions to, for example, the scope of the U.S. involvement or um, the incremental changes in the Ukrainian military's approach where now apparently they're more uh, focused on long-range missile attacks within Russian-held territory. Um, Those are going to get just by nature of the attention being Applied uh, less scrutiny than they otherwise might, and therefore escalation could could happen out of that. And even like the term escalation, now I uh, you often see trolls sort of I maybe mean, not the, they're not all trolls, but a lot of people who are active in pro Ukraine online discourse will uh, have made the concept of escalation to a meme where you know it's only Putin apologists who claim to be wearing of escalation because actually what they're wanting to do is um demand Ukraine surrender or, uh, cut off resources to Ukraine. And, uh, so escalation is just their, um, is just their, ven- claiming to be concerned about escalation is just their veneer for, you know, pursuing their chem- uh, Kremlin, uh, apologia or something like that. Um, so, you know, Mearsheimer sketches out some avenues for escalation that actually I've, Talked about it various times, and I have tried to. I, it's basically what Mearsheimer warns of is something that I've pretty much tr- I've tried to journalistically focus on since the war began, and it's. Um, I mean, I, the one thing I can attest to uh, as to his thesis is that it's getting more and more uh, <laughs> uh, dicey to do so, just because the um, the the pushback is seem- seemingly more vehement than ever. You know, maybe that doesn't re- ultimately matter as to whether the escalation actually happens, uh, but. I mean, who knows?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think it's right that we, you know, we underestimate the dangers here. Did you see the New York Times article um, today about the uh, uh, the nuclear power plant in Zaporizhia, where they're both both sides are saying that the other side is about to commit a provocation, and it's like a yeah, exactly. yeah, like nuclear plant, and it's like tomorrow. Hey.
0: Apparently, it's tomorrow. <laughs> so um, the report. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe this will be, be our final. Maybe this will be our final comment. Um, yeah. uh, yeah. Ap- apparently, apparently, uh, what the Ukraine, whoever it was, the operatives of Ukraine who made this warning, uh, they, they claim that, uh, Russia has told its personnel at this nuclear facility not to go in tomorrow because they're going to be staging a false flag attack. Yeah.
1: And, and also, th- today,
0: th- also today, th- apparently what happened was, you know, another, uh, you, uh, there was another attack in Crimea, but in a different part of Crimea than had been the case before. So the other, the, the previous two attacks on Crimea that hasn't that Ukraine hasn't officially taken credit for, but they've but you know anonymous Ukrainian officials have taken credit for it in various news reports and you know the public accounts of some of these you know, defense ministry uh, operators have alluded to it being you know the work of Ukraine. But 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 today um, there was an attack in. Uh, this place, KERCH, K-E-R-C-H, which is, uh, which is actually right across, from, you know, which is at the, the the extreme eastern end of Crimea, which there, where there hadn't been an attack, uh, as yet. So even even the scope of the Crimean uh, front seems to be, uh, expanding.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, the nuclear power plant thing is weird, um, because the, uh, you know, it's, it, the, um, Uh, So the the claim on the Ukrainian side or like the American media too is that the Russians are firing in the hopes that Ukraine fires back to like make Ukraine look bad or something. But that doesn't really make sense because if there's a meltdown and then the Russians are there, um, you know, they have to worry about the the, the Russians, you know, the Ukrainians hitting them back. And so it's like it doesn't make sense. It's like it only makes sense if you think like, you know, Russians like don't care or they know with 100 percent certainty Ukraine is not going to fight back. Um, you know, there's, there's shelling going on, so you know, obviously Ukraine must be, must be firing at this, uh, at this place. So, yeah, this is just, you know, this is just one thing that can go terribly wrong, and this is like pretty, this is on the front lines of the fighting. Um, and I think that this is the, when Mersheim, I think, gets at is something I've long thought about the, uh, the war, which is that it's, you know, it's like, it's hard to see how it ends. I mean, if like Ukraine like gets an advantage, right. They start like um, rolling up territories. There's no reason. There's no like real good reason to think this could happen because Ukraine has never shown an ability to go on the offensive. But let you know, if they could, uh, that would, i uh, maybe, I mean, Russia would get desperate. Russia still has options. I mean, Mersheimer mentions they never t- took out, you know, Ukraine's electricity grid, right. The nuclear weapons, of course, is the main thing he focuses on. um, and then if like Russia, you know, I think that like Russia getting the upper hand, I think is a better path to, you know, so as a probably a more likely path to lead to peace because, you know, Mersheimer assumes, oh, the U.S. will, um, you know, become militarily involved. I think that's less likely than Russia getting desperate and like, you know, sending, uh, you know, using nuclear weapons or doing something to, uh, or doing something, you know, drastic because in the end, it doesn't matter to the U.S. I mean, it's 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 embarrassing for. Uh, American leaders, but, you know, they have to, they would have to talk the country or get the country ready and be willing to deal with the political consequences of sending troops to Ukraine. While for Russia, I mean, it seems like, the, the you know, if they're being attacked, if Russian land, if you know, if Russian if territory Russia's claim, you know, starts falling, I mean, it's very much, much easier for Putin to, uh, politically to, uh, have, to have an escalation. Um, so he's, but he's right. I mean, he's right in the sense that like either way, like, you know, things, you know, are stalemated, like some side could get desperate to try to do something. If someone's side is winning, there's like a risk in all of these. It's, it's not like there's a, um, you know, it's not like it's not like there's a natural border like you know the demilitarized zone in in Korea or something. I mean, there you know there this is this is messy and the you know and, and the uncertainty is there. I mean, the uncertainty will be there until the war ends. So I think I think he's right. I think this is uh, this could this could end badly.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, all the more of a pessimistic outlook. I think it's accurate, but it's very pessimistic because he rightly acknowledges that. Right now, it's just too late to strike any kind of deal. I mean, it's, you know, we haven't even heard any murmurings of a potential deal even being entertained now for uh, several months. Um, and so, if you don't even have a framework right now where the beginnings of a deal could be conceived, then, uh, you know, we're probably moving further and further away from that even being a remote possibility. And, um, you know, if a if a diplomatic settlement is not the way that the war is going to end, it's going to w- win with one or the other side winning, right? Or uh, at least, you know, achieving its objective such that it can declare victory of some kind. And um, it seems like that's almost would almost invariably have to include some as yet uh, unknown escalation and um you know putting it in those blunt of terms i think is helpful from meersheimer this is something a lot of people i guess could have have inferred uh, but it really does uh you know sharpen the stakes uh, a bit to just kind of you know jar you into paying attention um yeah yeah
1: mersheimer i mean mersheimer is i mean he's very uh I mean, he, under, he. I think he's. This is sort of his his thing. He's like, you know, think about the tail end risk, which you know we're not very, we're not very good at. Yeah, it's like Putin didn't do anything. Like, yeah, when Finland and uh, Sweden joined NATO, but started to join NATO, but he like, you know, he did. He obviously did something like, you know, in Ukraine. So it's like either way. Like, if he doesn't do anything, it's like he's a, uh, you know, he's 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 backing off. You know, the the strength worked. If he does do something. Oh, he's psychopath. They need to fight Putin. There's no, you know, there's nothing he can do that wouldn't make these people advocate for the exact same policies um, that they've advocated for. Uh, the um, yeah. So, you want to talk about this? Do you want to talk about this, Cheney?
2: Yeah, yeah. Let's
0: talk about this, Cheney. One quick point on this because I'm actually uh, one more quick point on the mirror thing. I was actually curious what your thought is. You know, one one uh, point that he made in this essay is a point that I've heard him make before. He gave a talk at some um, International Relations Institute in uh, Italy maybe two months ago and, and said this. And I, I have to admit that even though I tend to agree with Mearsheimer or I at least agree with the thrust of his analysis, this one point that he made gave me pause. Um, he says, contrary to the conventional wisdom in the West, Moscow did not invade Ukraine to conquer it and make it part of a greater Russia it was principally concerned with preventing Ukraine from becoming a Western bulwark on the Russian border. And Mearsheimer says this to make the broader point that, uh, Russia's war aims have also expanded. So now they are apparently engaged, you know, do have the goal of territorial expansion, at least in, you know, maybe the East and the South, uh, also potentially elsewhere in Ukraine. Um, but I guess I'm just not certain how Mearsheimer knows that exactly. I mean, it very well could be, and I think almost certainly is, that the chief goal had to do with Ukraine becoming a Western bulwark um, and, you know, the intensifying military integration between U.S. and the U.S. and Ukraine and so on, which we've been over often uh, on this show and elsewhere. But um, I, I, I can't discount. That there also was at least a secondary, or you know, tertiary, or whatever goal of some sort of um, conquest on the part of of Russia. Given that they are, they do now seem to be annexing territory. I mean, they're you know supposedly going to hold a referendum in Herson, um next month, and and so uh, I, I guess I'm, I'm not entirely sh- uh, sure what the basis is to say that. It's simply wrong to say one of the initial aims of the war is uh, territorial expansion or, or conquest. Uh, I, mean, I simply don't know.
1: Did Mersheimer say that the beginning of the war was uh, that? I mean, I think he says now it's um, uh, now it's um, uh, the goal. And I think, that's, I think that's right. I mean, it's like – I think it's both. I mean, I think it's – I think, like, sure, like if Russia could have – I mean, like if you're worried about the uh, security – of like Ukraine being pro NATO or whatever, like the the you know, best way to assuage that is like you know to take over parts of Ukraine, right? mean so like it depended on how well uh, the Ukrainians would fight and how you know to what extent they could hold Russians uh, they could hold Russians off. Um, so yeah, I think there's it's clear that there is you know there are territorial. Uh goals here. I don't think, you know, I don't think Mersheimer is wrong there. I mean, you you don't know for sure, but I mean, like they've introduced the ruble, you know, they've uh you know, they they've apparently like hooked up like uh southern Ukraine to like the Russian
0: internet. Maybe I, mean, maybe I wasn't clear enough. Yes, there are territorial goals now. Mm-hmm. And but Mersheimer says when the war was launched conquest or territorial territorial expansion was not an objective of Russia.
1: Oh, it was merely that?
0: to yeah, well. Here's what uh, here's the quote again. Contrary to the conventional wisdom in the West, Moscow did not invade Ukraine to conquer it and make it a part of Greater Russia. And uh-huh. what I'm saying is, maybe that was actually the goal from the outset or at least one goal. Uh, you know, uh, in addition to you know forcing Ukraine not to be transformed into a bulwark of Western you know, military yeah, power.
1: Yeah, okay, I see that. I see that paragraph now. Uh, no, you're you're right. Uh, yeah, he, that's that's uh, I think an unjustified assumption. Maybe that wasn't their goal two years ago, but when they launched the war, um, it, sure, it sure looked like they were going to they were going to the capital, which is what you would do if you wanted to conquer a country. So yeah, I don't I don't know why he says that. Yeah.
0: Okay. Anyway, let's go to uh, let's go to Liz Cheney. Uh, I, I noted that uh, two women that you've mounted uh, counterintuitive defenses of. Recently, are Liz Cheney and the Prime Minister of Finland. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, for different reasons. No, I, the, the, um, uh, Liz Cheney, I, I don't like Liz Cheney, um, but like, I think people have a very, you know, they, they don't, you know, they're very simple minded, like, oh, I don't like this person, so they can't possibly, like, have any kind of, like, idealistic trait or, like, you know, have a genuine reason for what they're doing. So, so my view of Cheney is no matter what you think about politics, she was the number three Republican in the House. Uh, she torched her political career. She just, she just said this thing. Trump, you know, wanted to steal the election. He didn't accept the legitimacy of the election, and she did it. You know, for she did it because she must have believed it. Because she, you know, anyone could see that this was a bad idea, um, politically. Uh, and then she did end up losing um, by a lot. So, you know, I, I don't know why people would would have a hard time believing that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I agree. I mean, I do think that Liz Cheney is very... It's similar to John Bolton, right? Yeah. John Bolton really hasn't adjusted his views over the course of the past several years, as far as I can tell. Um, But what has been radically adjusted are just the larger political circumstances that he's operating within. And so now it seems like, because he's just maintaining his views consistently that he must have done this about face where now all of a sudden he's like anti-Republican because of uh, his criticism of Trump. I I don't think that's true. I do think there are a minority of political actors out there who actually are sincerely motivated by principle. And in the case of Cheney and Bolton, I think the principles they're committed to are extremely destructive, but I don't really have much of a basis to, doubt their authenticity. In fact, I ha- there's much more of a basis, I would say, to doubt the authentic- authenticity of Republicans who now see Liz Cheney as anathema. Because it was just in 2019, so in the previous Congress, so not this Congress, but the previous one, after the 2018 midterms, Liz Cheney may- was made the conference chair of the House Republican Caucus. So, as you said, number three uh, in the seniority ranks in the caucus. So, you know, even when, you know, and Trump was in power at the time, uh, Cheney had a different sort of emphasis where she was probably more interested than in figuring out where she could praise Trump than where she could criticize him. Um, but her views, when she was put in that position by her colleagues and now, are really not that different as far as I can tell. The only difference is one intervening event, which was January 6th, with which Cheney says was a you know a formative event in American history. Now, I don't really agree with that, or at least I don't agree with her attribution of this massive significance to January 6th, but I have no reason to doubt that her analysis there is at least sincere. Um, so for the Republicans and conservative pundits and whatever who Happening to tolerate or even uh, um, boost Cheney and you know praise her and, and welcome her comfortably into their coalition just a few short years ago to now pretend that she's this you know diehard ideological enemy. If I doubt anyone's sincerity,
1: I doubt theirs here. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're right. I mean, I think the. You know, it's 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 weird because, like these, you know, these ultra maggot people, you <laughs> to ultra maggot to Biden's uh, Biden's word and the words. There's, um, you know, it's like you can't get them on the like they won't engage with it, right? Like you, you could tell them, like this is, you know, why was she in good standing with you know the the Trump's Republican Party until you know the January sixth stuff and. You know they can't. They can't tell you. And like, why is Lindsey Graham? You know, they'll say they're anti-war. So why is Lindsey Graham? Uh, you know, Trump's biggest, you know, biggest booster around. Um, so yeah, you're right. And you know, it's like it's not that it doesn't mean that Liz Cheney is you know good or, or right. But you know, she she did things for reasons other than um, political gain. People like, she wants a you know she wants a show on CNN like. No, like, why? Why do you think her life ambition is to have a show on CNN? I think her ambition is to be a successful politician. Like, there's no reason to think like being on CNN was her goal. Like, yeah, she can be on CNN now, but like, that's not, um, you know, that's <laughs> that doesn't. There's nothing in her life to indicate that that's what she set out uh, to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's funny. I mean, you get all these responses and people are like genuinely angry by this. It's like, well, why be angry? Like, like it's not like. Like but you don't have to think. Like, yeah. every single thing about like her is bad. Like if someone says like, oh, she's got a like a, a nice outfit on. Like you don't have to be like angry that like someone said something nice about this Janie. And you're not even saying something that's nice.
0: I mean, saying somebody is consistent is not necessarily to say that they're nice or necessarily
1: to. Valorize them. Um, well, they say they have a true – like a, they believe in something and they're willing to sacrifice their political self-interest for it. I do think that's a compliment.
0: Yeah, maybe. Um, well, <laughs> sorry to do uh, Moore's Law, but I mean you could say Hitler has consistently. Hitler, of list, of yeah, I mean no, I don't you know that that would Hitler be has necessarily
1: praised. Yeah, I mean, but that's fine. I mean, you could say someone has a genuine belief in something; it doesn't mean that they're good. Obviously, they can have bad beliefs, but uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just
0: saying that to, to, to say they have genuine beliefs and have you know followed them consistently is not necessarily to praise them or say even say something nice about them. I mean, it can be a horrible thing that somebody has consistent beliefs that they're sticking to. Anyway, that's sort of a minor point. Um, you know, when when the JFK Library awarded Liz Cheney its Profile in Courage. Award, uh, I made fun of it just because it was so representative of a certain liberal tendency to just latch on to whoever is you know the most oh, know, high profile. I profi- didn't know
1: they had this. I didn't know they had this. This had a yearly profile. encouraged things. So let's see who I want. I'm interested. In, so it's yeah, to Russell, it Michael. was this,
0: this. This year it was Zelensky and Liz Cheney. Got it. They gave one which, to which, Kofi. Like,
1: uh, yeah, <laughs> Kofi Annan, McCade Oh, this is so lame. Zelensky and Liz Cheney. They said so I gave him two this year. Edward Kennedy. <laughs> Edward Kennedy. Yeah, Ted Kennedy. Yeah. Karen Bass. What did Karen Bass do? That was courageous. Yeah. Well, I
0: don't know. It was probably her activism in the LA in the 80s or something. <laughs>
1: anyway, the, I,
0: I made fun of, the award, of this award going to Liz Cheney and Zelensky just because it was so perfectly emblematic of a certain liberal sensibility. Um, but – if the criteria for a JFK Profile Encourage Award was it's something like sticking to one's principles even in the face of adverse political consequences, um, then you know, maybe Liz Cheney did deserve the award. Well,
1: they gave it to Mitt Romney last year, twenty one. Yeah, exactly. And they gave it to the Secretary of State of Michigan, some woman for some reason. Uh, oh, and then they have this other guy, Rusty Bowers. Do you know him? He's like the uh, yeah, the Republican of the uh, Speaker
0: of the House yeah, in Arizona.
1: Uh, and then they gave it to some woman in uh, election employee Fulton County. <laughs> it's just every year. It's like it's yeah, like just just like anyone who opposes Trump. That's yeah, it's scary.
0: just it's just the, uh it's just the, uh the bit player of whatever the that the uh, most recent Trump controversy is. Um, oh, they
1: gave it. They gave it to Mitch Landrieu, the mayor of New Orleans, for removing Confederate knot monuments.
0: <laughs> what was that? Mitch, Mitch Landrieu is actually in the Biden administration now. Yeah, yeah, twenty. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't think they. I don't think the JFK. New Center... Orleans is
1: like a what? Like a seventy percent black city. Like I don't think that was that took tons of courage. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure his uh, political future was hanging in the balance when he made that decision. <laughs> um, but, you know, so those other examples, no, the the consistency or, uh, you know, doing something based on principle in the face of adversity criteria would not apply to some of those other people you mentioned, but, you know, it could well apply to Cheney. So I guess, you know, if that actually is your criteria, then OK, Cheney, maybe, maybe she did deserve it. Um, do you have a, you want to, what was your, you want to? Enlighten everyone as to your defense of the Prime Minister of Sweden, uh, Finland, well, who, was caught, who was caught, who was, who was. I mean, I don't know exactly. A video came out this week of her partying. Um, it, it doesn't even seem like a bunch of a party, really. It just seems like a bunch of people in a house where they are doing like a goofy dance to a song, and somebody recorded it. I, I don't know if uh, that was leaked or how it came out exactly, um, but. Um, it uh provoked some some commentary as to whether that was, you know, uh proper for her to if it was proper for her to be uh pictured drinking and partying as a uh, as the head of government of a country. And um I mean I mostly thought it was funny that like she's seen as this cool, uh, you know, fun hip young prime minister and she's also you know, manifest you know, so, the, the most so militaristic had, prime minister that Finland has
1: had in a long time because she's she had spearheading NATO membership. So she had received a message that said she had, might have been exposed to the coronavirus, and you're supposed to apparently like quarantine. Like when you get that, and so she was out clubbing give uh, everyone COVID, you know, supposedly. Well, that was last um, year, I think. I think this. Is no, no, this is, the new, this is the new. This is the new Oh, this is the new one. Okay. Oh, no, oh no, no, you're right, you're right. This is from last December. Okay, I'm just looking at the story right now. It said last December. Yeah, this COVID thing happened. So this thing, yeah, I'm surprised if they would still be doing that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's like, who cares? Like, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, why would people like care? I mean, she's having fun. Uh, you know, she's she's enjoying life. I I just don't see why anyone would care. There was one guy on Twitter like, if this was a man, well, like, maybe like you know people would like treat him harshly. I mean, who cares? Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I don't I don't particularly care at all about whether it's proper for someone in her position to be on video partying. I just couldn't help but note the irony of her, be, you know, having this image as a fun, you know, young. Prime Minister, who everybody, you know, thinks is so cute, and she's also the one who's basically uh, militarizing Finland to a
1: historic. Is, is, extent. Is, it, is that her, or is that like just like is she just going? Is she like the big mover behind this, or is it just like everyone in Finland? I thought she was like you know, sort of moderate, sort of. I thought like the politics of Finland just went. Crazy. Yeah, she. Uh, yeah, she's. I'm it. not saying she's. The, uh,
0: I wouldn't say necessarily. I mean, I don't. I'm not a Finnish speaker, an expert on Finland's domestic politics, but as best I know, she's not like the prime mover on NATO membership or the drive for NATO membership, but she had to spearhead it as the prime minister and she had to she had to endorse it in order for it to you know, be, be actionable. So, no, I'm a – like she I think snapped, snapped general, her fingers yeah. and it happened. It's, it's generally supported based on polling within – so, yeah. uh, Finland then it did pass overwhelmingly in the Finnish uh, parliament I, I uh, but I know I, it's still I sort as of general, is ironic as a general
1: matter I think we need younger politicians I mean we, you know it's like there's no you know we have like politicians in their 70s or 80s no private company has this because your brain is you know, your brain and physical stamina have deteriorated by that age so like I think it's just very good that they have you know a, a prime minister in the mid thirties and you know we should we should have more of that if like if that means like, she parties like okay like she has the energy for it because she's actually young unlike these people who are politicians who like you know need to be in bed by eight o'clock. Okay, so to conclude,
0: Liz Cheney and Santa Madden, I think her name is, are, uh, <laughs> our,
1: our both, profiles are both they're both
0: super they're both super cool. Um, and profiles encouraged. Okay, let's go to some calls. Old, you are up.
3: Hello, can you guys hear me? Hey, yep, can hear you. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. I've been listening to your takes on Ukraine and I sympathize with a lot of the concerns that you have with sort of the Western response or diplomatic position leading up to the war and even prior to that. But Where I differ from you guys is that I feel like Russia is overwhelmingly to blame for both the war and its sort of state as a country, which I would say is very bad. And I mean, just as one example, I mean, I understand that the West was sort of maybe excited about expanding NATO, but overwhelmingly, I feel like the reason that NATO expanded is because many of Russia's neighbors basically hate Russia and feared Russia invading them, like they have many times in the past. And that was the the main driver. And I guess what strikes me as strange about your take on it is that I feel like the framework that you use is very similar to a lot of sort of standard woke leftist views of things where it sort of tends to be anti-American or view America as sort of suspicious in its motives and and capabilities and also sort of views power dynamics as sort of inherently the fault of the more powerful party. Uh, In this case, obviously the West is much, much more powerful than Russia, but I feel like that's just because it's, it's not a very competent country and also doesn't have a particularly great history with its neighbors. So I, that's the thing where I, I just don't uh, quite understand how, how how you guys are coming about this. And so I I don't know. I'm wondering if, if I'm viewing your uh, take on the situation wrong or if you feel that that um, the in this particular instance, the U.S. and the West in general has just been so bad at handling their the relationship with Russia and Ukraine that it sort of uh, that it that it reaches the level of of sort of fault that Russia has. I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: So I mean the you know the idea that Ukraine has always been sort of a monolith against you know monolithically you know against Russia is is wrong. I mean they've they've been you know just polling you know five ten years ago showed it was pretty evenly divided. So what was the U.S. you know what was the U.S. Um, justification um, in those days of trying to move closer to Ukraine, try to make a military alliance with it, you know, so, uh, supporting uh, Maidan? Like I, I I do see I do see a lot of this tension being. Uh, being the result of American uh, involvement in the in the region, um, and so you know, I mean, the I agree that these uh, states in Eastern Europe are often, you know, they they have you know they have their own rational reasons for being um, for being hostile to Russia or for uh, fearing Russia, Russian power. I think that's. That's true. But, you know, Russia, I think, has reason to think that the U.S. would overthrow it if it if it had the chance and wants to encircle it and wants to make alliances um, against it and make it militarily and economically weaker. So, you know, I think there's uh, something of a symmetry there. Yeah. And, you know, for me, it's
0: not really a matter of assigning faults, right, because... Russia launched the invasion in February, so to deny that they're responsible for the decision to launch the invasion would be nonsensical. And I've, of course, never denied that. But that can't be the be-all, end-all of the discussion of, you know, the factors which gave rise to the war. And, you know, when you liken it to the woke left and their you know, alleged tendency to blame America or be suspicious of America, I mean, I think that's a bit of a stretch. I mean, I don't really see the, quote, woke left all that concerned about foreign policy any longer. Um, So if you're talking about this, uh, and I'm not saying that uh, – or in other words, it's not like opposition to US foreign policy is really a driver or even an animating influence any longer on – Activists, liberals and leftists, uh, if anything, it's gone way down the hierarchy of priorities for them compared to like during the, the Iraq war period or something, whereas you know, now they're far more fixated almost to the point that you can't get anything onto their radar other than whatever the, you know, the latest identity related <laughs> issue is. Um, yeah so i mean well, so the
1: no, more than that i mean that i've never seen a woke opposed like i mean they're pretty much on board if anything with uh uh support for ukraine and other right. foreign policy areas sometimes you know depending on uh who you're occasionally but yeah yeah but no matter what either way you look at it it's very low on the priority even if they are leftist on foreign policy
0: yeah so um and and also it's also it, it's as you mentioned you know, Old, which uh, <laughs> if that's your name, so- um,
3: Socrates is my Twitter handle. I'm i an anonymous. Uh, <laughs> okay, anonymous fair analyst. enough. Um,
0: yeah, I mean, it's 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 also manifestly true that popular opinion within many of these countries is what is what pushed their political leadership, in at least in Eastern Europe, to join NATO, um, but. At the same time, it's an active policy choice on the part primarily of the US as the leading military power in the alliance, as the, uh, you know, the essentially the founder of the alliance. Even today as Finland and Sweden are pursuing formal uh, accession, the, the various parliaments around Europe and uh, North America that have to approve it have to maybe have to approve the membership of Sweden and Finland, they are required per the charter of NATO to send their official documentation certifying approval by their parliaments to the State Department, um, just to give you a sense of how integral uh, the U.S. is in NATO. And so uh, expanding NATO is a conscious policy choice on on the part of the U.S. because it's also, at the end of the day, the U.S. is the guarantor of these countries' um, Security uh, if they are members of the alliance, and you know there's a giant financial incentive in uh, pursuing NATO expansion for you know, defense contractors and all this. And so yes, it is true. you know no one I, I don't think would contest this seriously, that uh, a lot of these Eastern European countries genuinely did desire to join NATO, but You know, that's not really the decisive factor in choosing to expand NATO. The the decisive factor is U.S. policy choices. And if U.S. policy choices have tended to exacerbate tensions with Russia, um, then I think it's fair to scrutinize those uh, choices for the um, ill effects that they've produced.
3: I mean, I, I think that that is totally fair. I guess I just come down on the side that the, the downside of, um, of thinking, of sort of prioritizing Russia's feelings when, when thinking about it, like essentially you're saying, hey, even though Poland, you want to be part of NATO, we're going to say no because of Russia. To me, the downsides of doing that are greater than the downsides of, that come with, freely associating with another country like Poland or the Baltics um, or now Sweden or Finland, like I feel like having to sort of walk on eggshells again, it, it to me, it's, it seems <laughs> I know I know the woke isn't big on foreign policy at the moment, but I just I see some interesting parallels, I guess, in sort of this idea that you need to be really concerned about, you know, the the feelings of somebody that's that's sort of failing. I guess it's the kind of how I see that the the, the woke parallel. Well, it's like, hey, look, they're failing because of their own actions, but you need to not do things that make sense to you or to make sense to the society because of this other party that just can't, you know, can't get where they want to get on their own. I guess th- does that make any sense at all?
0: Yeah, I, I know what you're saying, but I would add that. You know prioritizing the feelings of Russia or some other state I mean that's a frivolous way of putting it. What's being prioritized is not their feelings per se, at least as I see it what the the priority is averting war or minimizing conflict or um, discouraging over militarization and over bureaucratization of these international institutions that you know once they're created it and begin and continue expanding and burgeoning um, have uh, the tendency to seek conflict as like a self justifying force. Like why did, why would NATO need to expand if not for the perception of some threat? I mean, NATO and its member states kind of fused together all these think tank operations and kind of affiliated um, networks, professional networks in the national security realm and such, where basically their job is to justify the existence of NATO more or less, and in so doing they point to threats sometimes they you know they inflate them sometimes not, but you know the expansion of that entity means the expansion of the you know universe of threats that could be basically concocted to justify the existence of, of NATO. Um, So I I don't think it's frivolous to take into account, you know, the supposed feelings of the state with the world's largest nuclear arsenal. I mean, if the, if a prior generation of American statesmen didn't take into account the feelings of the Soviet union, then there might have been nuclear annihilation i mean I, I don't the people who were skeptical or critical of the pelosi trip to taiwan a few weeks ago including me were generally not you know per se concerned with the feelings of china in objecting to pelosi's trip they were concerned that the trip was exacerbating tensions and making them more likely the prospect of war and you know, feeding into the acceleration of the militarization of the situation, and so forth. So, I think to reduce it to feelings is yeah, I, maybe a bit of a stretch in trying to you know, draw out the analogy to wokeism.
3: Yeah, I, I, I don't mean to say that that uh, it's just about feelings in in the sense of like being caring at all about Russia's feelings. Obviously, that's part of diplomacy is trying to understand the other side's position and work as much as you can to accommodate them, you know, without, you know, collapsing your own position. But I guess at the end of the day, just to think about Poland, which again was something that Russia was very, very upset about, you know, at at the end of the day, either it's a yes or a no. Either you're saying, look, Polish people, you really want to be part of this alliance because you've been overrun several times just in the past few generations by Russia. And either we say yes to that, or we say no to that. And we either have to prioritize feelings as sort of a catch-all, but just like the, the the beliefs, the hopes, the aspirations, whatever, of Poland, or you have to prioritize the feelings, the hopes, the concerns, whatever, of Russia. And to me, I think at the end of the day, the principle needs to be the, the, like the correct principles that is the decision that you should make, except for like in extreme circumstances. But in general, like the idea that hey Poland is its own country and wants to freely associate itself with the United States, to me that's a as a principle, that should be that should be allowed. And so if you have to choose between one or the other, either choosing for Poland for instance, or choosing for Russia, you should choose the side that the that the general principle is is the proper one for
1: but it. the US could I mean the US can choose what it wants too, right? Nobody's saying Poland can't choose what it wants. Uh, we're usually c- more critical, I think, of American foreign policy. And the question is, what is the interest here in America of, you know, going to Russia's borders and trying to be in a military alliance with Ukraine? It, it's hard to see what that is. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah uh, also, aside from
0: the question of whether, on principle, it's correct to prioritize the feelings—I know you don't aren't necessarily attached to that term—but to prioritize the feelings of Poland or the feelings of feelings of Russia, um, I do think there are separate reasons on principle to object to NATO expansion. And a lot of these principled objections to the expansion of NATO used to be fairly commonly raised even in very mainstream precincts. I mean, if you been following the discussion of this online, since the war started, you'll know that uh, you know extremely diverse range of figures on the left and right and everywhere in between um, dating back to the 90s, objected on various grounds to NATO expansion. Some were just purely practical uh, and um, logistical almost. But there were also s- some principled objections, and I would tend to agree with them. And one of them would be that it's, it's on principle objectionable to... Take a, a military alliance that was formed in one very specific geopolitical context, meaning, you know, the NATO was created in, to uh, to blunt or counteract the Warsaw Pact, and then, you know, by 1991, the Soviet Union resolves the uh, dissolves rather the the initial impetus for the creation of NATO has been you know literally mooted, and yet um, because there are uh, a, A variety of vested interests. I mean, Russia was not a military power at that time in the 90s, and yet NATO expanded anyway, and it wasn't conceivable, at least then, to say that, you know, it it was done to because there was this imminent threat coming to Eastern Europe from Russia. I mean, Russia was basically in shambles economically and and otherwise. Um, And so to Expand NATO at that time and fortify into this global behemoth I think could have been objected to on other principal grounds, such that you know we should not it 's it's, uh, dangerous or destructive or corrosive in, in a, a number of ways to latch onto the you know, inevitable expansion of a military alliance that has no longer even could no longer even serve its, the purpose for which it was initially created because the maintenance of blocks of militarized countries kind of could could almost uh, is inherently a dangerous proposition because it means that it would have to be arrayed against something or someone. Otherwise, why would it exist? Um, And so that could, that theoretically produce avoidable conflict down the line. And um, so I would suggest that there are some principal reasons to object to NATO expansion, even NATO itself, um, separate and apart from whether we are right to prioritize the you know democratic desire, if you want to put it that way, of Poland versus Russia. Um, just as a quick side note, I mean it actually has and it has been unclear at various times whether in these these tiny you know post-Soviet microstates that have joined NATO recently, actually under Trump, like uh, North Montenegro, uh, or, or Montenegro rather, North Macedonia. Like when Montenegro joined, there was limited data and hardly anyone even followed it or knew it was happening. But it was kind of like a 50-50 split, at least as far as I could see from the polling that was available in terms of whether the people who live in Montenegro wanted to join NATO. So it was kind of an elite propelled initiative for Montenegro anyway to join NATO. And um, that's because you know, NATO is a—it's a, it's an elite institution. It's where these national security operators pool their resources and you know uh conspire amongst themselves and I'm saying conspire in a half joking way. So I think there are you know there are there are other reasons why one might object.
3: Well I really appreciate the points that you guys made. It gave me a lot to think about. I'll just tidy up at the very end here and just say that I, I think I'm still on the other side simply because to me the biggest issue in place both with the Ukraine war and NATO is preventing the type of sort of traditional war by conquest that I think Russia is at least partially engaging in right now. I just think that that's so damaging that even sort of the cost, Michael, that you brought up of kind of having this gigantic defense industrial organization that's growing and sort of justifying itself. And even though I don't think that the United States inherently has a lot lot at stake in Ukraine per se as a country, as Richard pointed out, to me, the overwhelming motivation for me being in favor of ag ukraine and in favor of sort of being able to expand nato is because i do think that that the international norm against sort of territorial conquest is so valuable that it's worth even you know the cost that you guys brought up so that's i'll make that final point but i really appreciate your time guys
0: all right thanks appreciate the call uh and the uh, reasonable points made all right Zanda, uh, eric you are up love is an open door <laughs> That's what I think
4: about with this open door policy.
0: So someday I'm gonna have to um, collect all your uh, musical intros and make a montage or something.
4: Oh yeah, oh yeah. Um, I give good montage. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, I, I I wanted to push back a little bit so maybe meet you halfway on the idea of Liz Cheney as being somewhat principled because you know, obviously it's it's you know this is this is classic. Uh, uh, might perhaps gadfly behavior but i think it's it's useful as always is um to think about but you know i really do think that the thing that trump did that rubbed her probably the the wrong way the most was when he he said in the debate to jeb bush well yeah you know what you know what the towers came down under your brother i remember watching that debate you know if you remember it um thinking you know I was never I mean I'm never going to vote for Trump or whatever, and I was never going to, but just thinking finally, somebody says it, you know, and it's like, why did it have to be Trump to say that to say that like you know cause or when I he s- or do- when he said
0: that Bush lied the country into war it lied the country into well war in Iraq that, yeah. Right?
4: yeah. You know, I mean, in her, you know, so I just think it's as simple as in, you know, in her mind, her heroic father, you know, saved us for after nine eleven, and then. Well, but there was, us- but there was
1: years after that before yeah. you know, Cheney was, and they were, you know, Cheney came to the Republican Party, and then it was years after that when she turned on Trump. Yeah,
0: yeah. If it, if it was, Trump, if it was but- simple as that, why did she spend years more or less reconciling herself to Trump and choosing to more emphasize? That's the you know, policy because decisions that, that Trump made that she it, she, she know, liked. I mean, she praised she praised him on. A, you can find, I went through and found a bunch of tweets where, of course, she praised his you know, the assassination of Soleimani and uh, you know different measures taken on uh, Iran and point, China though. and all that's that. The point
4: is that she praises. So that's if she was really you know principled anti-Trump. You know she picked the most uh, you know late. Late comers issue, you know, January 6th, to, to come on to that. And of course, you know, what do you think her goal is? Her goal is to destroy Trump, you know, personally, I think. But you know, of course, she's going to take any type because at the end of the day, that's the thing is that Trump and the neocons were mostly in sync. And other than Trump's bloviation, and other than Trump's, you know, attempted resistance, they knew how to, they knew exactly what to do, to you know, for example, keeping you know the Syrian troop movements you know secret from him. They knew how to, so you know, anytime. So at the end of the day, um, yeah, Cheney, Liz Cheney is not really principled in so far as you know. Um, uh, uh, she was willing to take whatever Trump was going to give. Remember before Trump and all of this, I'll, I'll relate, to relate to you another figure. Remember Grover Norquist? He's a very anti-Trump guy now, right? But what did he say so many years no, ago? No, he's not. He said that oh, all, is he? I thought he was. Uh... No, I thought he's he was pro Muslim. Trump. He's married to I mean, a Muslim. I mean, I I I recall Grover so, Norquist. Well, he is married to a Muslim hearing.
0: woman. I
1: never heard of him being anti-Trump.
4: No, I've seen him do never-Trump stuff, but in any case, um, I think he tried to mute me and then he muted himself. <laughs> That's kind of an own on him, isn't it? But anyway, I'll keep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't try to mute Listen you. To he Don't tried to.
5: Uh,
4: no, my, but, but the thing is, pressed the, What he said was that yeah. the Republican Party, all they need for president is somebody who has five working digits he needs he said four working digits on a thumb because they just need to sign what the republican congress puts out right. and you know i think that came around on on governor Norquist maybe a little bit but at the end of the day that's what cheney and the neocons need but so but hold, but hold on hold on, think, hold on hold on hold on uh, at all
0: in order to de- uh deny that cheney is acting on principled grounds you would have to deny what she cites as her chief motivator for her current opposition January to Trump, 6th? which was January sixth. Yeah, do. so, well, so I mean, so you would think. have to deny you would have to deny her sincerity in you know portraying January sixth as this seismic event that you know altered the course of American history because there was no event akin to January sixth that happened before January sixth. So she would be inconsistent if there were January sixth style events that preceded January 6th itself. But she would be she, she would be consistent if um, January 6th is actually of the import that she ascribes to it.
4: Well, you know, I think um, like know, in, in
0: 2019, when she was more or less, you know, situating herself in such a way as to praise Trump where she could on various foreign policy grounds, There was no, like, quote-unquote threat to democracy on the order of January 6th that would have compelled her to take the oppositional stance toward Trump that she has now. I mean, I'm just trying to – and again, I'm only going on what
4: her stated logic is. And while it's interesting – well – you know, another. I think I can meet you halfway on that. You know, another. I mean, I'm compelled to bring up the consistency of you know another election that was kind of stolen, and what she would think of that. But um, <laughs> yeah. that's another I mean, part.
0: Yeah. Of it. Well, I mean, I guess uh, part of the. I think R- Trevor would probably agree with this, and he's you know made points along these lines. But if she is just being totally cynical, or if the logic that she's put forward, she's putting forward as to you know, the justification of her actions and her evolution and attitudes, um, if it's just a fig leaf, I mean, I struggle to see, like, what the underlying motivation would be. Like, what does she hope to achieve? I mean, she just...
4: To prevent him from running again. But why? Because she doesn't like him, and, and she also thinks he's dangerous for the party. But obviously, if if the choice is Trump or Hillary, she's going to go Trump, but she's not going to like it, right? And that's another way it's not really principled, isn't it?
6: No, I don't think she'll. I don't think she'll. Vote you think Trump she would endorse way.
4: Biden though, or endorse any Democrat? Oh yeah. Oh, she'll. She may. She'll endorse a third party or or the
1: Democrat. Yeah. There's no way she's gonna. Yeah, I think this is genuine dislike of Trump, a dislike of him because of January 6. Um, I don't think that that's. So, I mean, remember six, six, 6 or seven. Republicans. What did she think of
4: Trump? You know.
1: Before that, she probably thought he was bad, but like worth it for like the sake of the conservatism or the party or whatever she believes in. And then she thought he was so bad that, like, he couldn't be tolerated. But I
4: think she right. thinks so January 6th made also makes the party look bad in, in a way. So the prob- that's why he's so unstable. You know, I can see it both ways because even if it's principled that, like, she, she is she standing up for democracy or is she saying – you know look we can't win with this guy again this is too crazy and and if he does win again he's not we're not going to be able to control him so i'm going to pick this issue and take a high horse on it you know and we all agree i mean it's not a great issue to be a high horse on it because of all the other horrible stuff she she likes so i don't even feel like giving her um any half credit you know maybe okay. a quarter credit you you can hate her i won't hold that against
1: you i think she's a yeah. beautiful woman <laughs> all right, she, thanks.
0: Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there, Eric. All right, uh, Jonathan, you're
2: up. Can You hear me?
1: Yes. Yes.
2: Okay. Yeah, I wanted to follow up uh, with the commenter before about the the war, and this always comes up. This idea that Russia is going to overrun Poland is so uh, absurd. I mean, the I mean, first of all, that the gauges on the railroad, the rail lines are different from Ukraine to Poland. Like it's not even logistically possible to do this um, if that was their goal, but it's, it's also just like a, like this, it's gonna be already a problem for them to actually have to pacify the, the the reasons that are like semi-neutral towards Russia, let alone like the Western part of Ukraine. I don't even think Russia wants to get, to get that far, but let alone Poland, like it's not even the same culture. I mean, Ukraine and Russia, they have a similar culture, to a large extent, but I, I don't know, I just keep hearing this and I just don't understand why this keeps coming up, why people have this I know it's it's history, but you know, the history doesn't it's not the same as it was back in the in the thirties. I mean that was literally the Germans and the the Soviets just carving up behind the closed doors Poland and and uh that's what led to that. That was just a I mean it's kind of like a once in a lifetime type of ordeal, but Anyway, I wanted to just to make a comment on that because like, I hear it over and over again, and it just uh, kind of irks me.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's this uh, quasi domino theory that you hear incessantly, um, uh, and it's it's really I mean it was I, I tend to doubt that when people talk about the. About the threat of Ukraine, of a uh, Poland being invaded, or even any other of these uh, states, like you know the Baltic states or whatever. It's uh, probably not that they have a sincere belief that an invasion by Russia of Poland would actually be imminent. It's it's really just a um, a galvanizing tactic to uh, to encourage you know, military support for. Uh, Ukraine, like they 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 on principled grounds think that it's, you know, overwhelmingly necessary to deliver Russia a crushing blow in Ukraine and to well that that's the thing to to, to, hate, to galvanize, they to galvanize support for that they have to they have to they have to well and to galvanize support for that they have to present the impression that other countries could be at just as great of a risk as Ukraine is.
2: The poles and Ukrainians they i have some polish neighbors and it's amazing the stories i'm hearing like they they absolutely hate each other and uh in fact i was hearing from them that that they they were saying their family back in because they're from krakow and they said that everywhere you go now there's it's like they've colonized poland uh all these these like there's flags everywhere and like they're they're (laughs) getting pissed like they already the poles are a little you know edgy to begin with and uh like if they could just, if the poles could just put aside their sort of irrational behavior or views to the Russians, which I understand that, but uh, I think they, you know, they're kind of the key to solving all of this because they can easily find a resolution to this that would work on Russia's terms as well. Uh, I kind of think that that's why the U.S. is still, to the extent that we're involved there. I mean, we would need to logistically to work with the polls in order to make this whole bullshit, like, uh, continue. You know, so if the polls just kind of, like, stand up and just say, all right, enough, this is ridiculous. And the whole thing can just kind of end really quickly.
0: Yeah. You know, there was uh, Orban you know, of, of Hungary. Uh, Victor Orban gave a speech last month in uh, Romania at some you know, youth event and a lot of the popular coverage of it was on his comments on immigration, which uh, did come across as a tad uh, crude in the way they were formulated, let's say, but at least to me the much more interesting parts were his comments on uh, various uh, foreign policy issues, namely around the Ukraine war and what precipitated it, how it's being handled by the West and so on. And uh, one of the, kind of supporting points that he made that was actually pretty interesting and goes to what you're saying and what I've also experienced, especially when I was in Poland for a couple of weeks when, once the war started, am I just chatting with people? Um, according to Orban, even though, uh, Hungary and Poland have this kind of, uh, natural bond and even though the, uh, Polish government and the Hungarian government would ostensibly be seen as kind of ideological allies within the European Union because, you know, uh, Poland has a very socially conservative uh, government and uh, as is is Hungary. But what Orban said was that more or less he's given up on even trying to reason with the Poles on the issue (laughs) of Ukraine and Russia because it's like it's impossible to make any headway whatsoever. So, yeah, there's there's something, um, you know, just – deep so deeply tribal about it that uh it doesn't seem to lend itself to much uh much in the way of like a, re- a reasoned inquiry
2: i know it's ridiculous I, could, I mean i i have i have some, some Russian in my in my blood so i like, i know how the, the sort of stubborn behavior kind of plays out it's, it's very weird ultimately it's very like it's kind of like foreign to america very very foreign that, that sort of mentality um and that's going to be a problem, I think, uh, in the coming months.
0: Yep. All right. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. Let's go to uh, Rob. Rob, you're up.
1: Hi, I just got off the bike. Okay. Uh, uh, regard Glenn Cheney. Hi, Richard. Oh, hey, anyway. Rob. Doing okay? All, all, all I have to say is some people.
0: Back in here, Rob. Uh, Rob, you just dropped out. Rob going once. Uh, Rob going twice. Are you there? Rob, uh, you dropped out no, there? here Oh, yeah, you're back. Yep.
2: That some people genuinely make sacrifices telling people. What?
0: What? Sorry, Rob, I have there? to uh, I have to I have to boot you because you uh, you keep dropping in and out, uh, unfortunately. But uh, <laughs> next time, hopefully you'll yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah.
0: well, it's our uh, it's our mathematician friend.
5: Yeah. Um, so, Richard, um, I know that in the run up to the war, um, even the early, early days of the war, we we're very, very pro Putin. Well, you know, you were cheering on the Russian rooting for them because I don't know about passed. that. Come on. Well, Come I mean, you, you told me, you know, they passed. They passed a law against gay propaganda. So I mean,
1: them. that doesn't mean that it was true sure for them to conquer the world, but okay.
5: I mean, but, but you know, I think you were rooting for them over like the cringe Western backs. I don't so know I'm, about like, you, Von like,
1: Neumann, you you and your your claims, but but go ahead.
5: Um, okay. Um, has your okay? Has your position moved at all? Um, on the war as, as the war is dragged on and like you know, there's been this food crisis. Um, are you becoming less sympathetic to to Russia? I mean, because I think a lot of people have just in general, like some people in the world have. Um, a lot of countries that were off the fence are starting to become more critical. I'm not, I, you know, I know that um, you have your views about uh, NATO and I, I do agree with it to some extent, but I, I'm, I'm like, have you, have you got, have you become more critical of food throughout the war? I, I both of I you, think, I'll uh, put the same question. <clears throat>
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean I'm critical. At least
5: all at least always uh puts puts you on the spot.
1: <laughs> yeah, this guy.
5: I, I mean okay, my impression was that like your position earlier was I want Putin to win. Putin appeared to me in a dream because he was against LGBT. No, the
1: that was not the, shut up. No, I had a funny. Did Putin really like, appear to you in a dream? Oh yeah, we had a he choked with me. I was I was saying something like uh I didn't, yeah, I have, I have, a, I had a group where it was, <laughs> we were at a conference or something and I said something like, um, uh, I don't remember how our conversation started. I was like, oh, this, I didn't know the president of Russia could be such a nice man. And then he was, <laughs> then to me, he said, you could be anything you want, even the queen of England. And then I said, not the queen of Russia though. And we laughed. Wow. It
0: sounds like a profound, dream. <laughs> <laughs> it a profound dream. Yeah,
1: it was better than I, I tweeted it. But no, that, that's not. That, that's not a. Uh, it's,
0: it's a reasonable it's, question, though. I guess, like maybe the way I would put it, so it's a bit less accusatory. Is you know, uh, to whatever extent that, uh, you had you you admired like the social conservatism or whatever of Putin or like the Russian governing class. Um, has have the developments of the war, you know, changed your your uh, perspective?
1: Not really. I mean, the social conservatism is its own own thing. It doesn't necessarily have to be connected to the uh, to the war. I do. I will say. I mean, Neumann. Um, I think would. I think like one thing I did think was it actually would be better humanitarian wise if Russia achieved a quick victory. I mean, the, that would have been the best thing for Ukraine. I mean, because Ukraine wouldn't be suffering the way it is now. I still think that like. It's actually better for one side to win than, um, you know, than, than for this thing to drag on. So I do I do think, from a humanitarian perspective, that actually, um, you know, that is actually a defensible position. Or people, have, oh, principle self determination. Like, okay, if you care about that, but like, you know, that's sort of like a subjective thing people care about. I mean, it's not something that I value Ukraine self determination all that much. I mean, that's you, also-
5: you value Egyptians not starving to death certainly. I, mean, I we- value who. Egyptians not starving to death.
1: Sure, Egypt. I value Egyptians. I want I don't want to see Ukraine's Ukrainian suffering and be made be made into uh re- refugees. So, I don't, you know, I think that like we don't really we think about it in a very like uh, I think morally sort of stunted way. We're like, "Oh, yeah, the principle of Ukraine's like, you know, the principle is like Gonna destroy this nation. Like Ukraine will never be like a. It could it could have submitted to Russia and like a, a, accepted a leader that like Putin would have found acceptable, and it could have like you know it could have like had economic growth and it could have people. They've lost like twenty percent of their population. It's ridiculous. I mean, this well, country is never gonna be even back to its like its level that it was you know at the start of the war. So it's over for you. I mean, Ukraine is like it, by every measure like infinitely worse than it gave than if it gave Russia you know whatever terms it wanted um so yeah I, I think that fighting has has been a disaster for ukraine that's not a popular position but you know i think it's very defensible i mean you know
5: i, I think i would agree a lot of western foreign policy toward russia since the end of the cold war has been idiotic but you know are, are you not at all also and I, I would totally agree with that you know but I'm, um am um are you not also like pissed off at Putin for doing this and invading, and causing you know you do you hold him do you put any like more i hold yes on...
1: i hold him i hold him responsible um, for the war in Ukraine, yes. You haven't had
5: any dreams like that since the war started, right?
1: It's not that, a dream is not a, is not a, uh, a, it's not a dream is not a um, expression of support. You know, people just have dreams. <laughs> it's who your subconscious support <laughs> I don't think it is. And, uh, just think of Putin was on my mind a lot. I was reading so much about, uh, you know, Russia and the war. And so, you know, it was sort of a natural thing. All right, well, uh, Thanks always. That was amusing. And let's go, uh,
0: perhaps finally to Vin.
6: Hey guys. Uh, what's up? What's up? Um, I've been asking a few people this, but uh, what's your picture, man. What is that? <laughs> it's an inside joke. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a Somali general flirting with, a, a Russian Soviet era woman. Wow.
1: So what's what well, this? Is, she was. What was she doing? She was in Somalia or something, or if they were
6: in Russia. Yeah, this is when this is in Somalia. This is when uh, they were allied with the Soviet Union uh-huh. between '69 to I guess '77 when the Ethiopian War happened when they split. Um, and there's just like an inside joke of all the soldiers were trying to, uh, I guess, uh, trying to holler at uh, the. Russian women, so
1: who's inside Who's inside joke is this i
6: I had a joke with uh somebody on here uh, uh-huh. so there was one of the rooms on here it's nothing nothing, nothing big. <laughs> okay <laughs> but yeah um i've been I've been finding it amusing about uh i guess uh how much talk about there is in in the in u s politics around fascism and I guess calling. Democrats calling Republicans fascists all the time. And I'm wondering what you guys think of how much of that is projection, how much of that is uh I guess the Democratic Party not just you know, it becoming going in bed with neocons, but literally becoming neocons. I mean I want to just read a tweet from Charles Booker real quick and I'll let you guys answer. But he said about Rand Paul. He said Rand Paul is now calling to repeal the espionage act after the world learned donald trump is under investigation for violating it when i am elected to the senate you will never have to question my loyalty to our country and i just find that so amusing uh, how much of that how much of yeah. that do you guys think is is projection how much of you do you think is is like maybe subconscious self-hatred that they're just they just all sound like i don't know donald rumsfeld or i, I don't know like what do you guys think
0: yeah uh, i've uh, i've written quite a bit about this and um, one thing that you definitely saw happen when Trump became a um, prominent political figure, it was probably, I would mark it to around the time when he first, when he wrapped up the Republican nomination in 2016, there was a raft of uh, commentary pieces from prominent liberals, uh, journalists, basically uh, declaring that Trump was a, Literal fascist or something along those lines, and by the word by fascist, what they generally meant was just bad, and bad enough that uh, all manner of you know heretofore uh, unprecedented tactics are acceptable to uh, oppose Trump and prevent him from taking power, and uh, the logic of their castigation of Trump on these terms never really held up to me because, you know, first of all, if you genuinely did think that Trump was a, quote, fascist in line with, you know, the historical fascist that most of us tend to know, I mean, world leaders like a Mussolini or a a Hitler or something, then um, you'd probably do more to oppose the Ascendance of this figure than just like tweet or, you know, donate money through Act Blue to your local Democratic uh, congressional candidate or, or, or whatever. Um, so their actions didn't match their words in terms of the severity of the threat that they claimed was uh, in existence. And so from that, you really just had to conclude that it was a uh, it was a rhetorical attack. I think some of them did genuinely think that Trump Trump was a threat, but the usage of the fascist term terminology was really just like a, a rallying cry or an organizing uh, ploy on the part of anti-Trump forces to um, justify their own craziness. Um, justify their own, you know, uh, jettisoning of, you know, just uh, basic evidentiary standards, uh, basic uh, adherence to uh, reasonable, you know, evaluation of facts. Um, because if it's true that uh, you're opposing a fascist threat, then all other considerations ought probably to get subordinated to that. Um, but, you know, what Trump actually did in office is not consistent with anything that I think could be rationally described as, quote, fascism. Um, but the insistence of, that it was gave a certain, you know, valence to the uh, activities of Trump's left uh, liberal opponents. And uh this is sort of like a secondary point, but I, one thing I, I think the uh, specter of fascism that was, Touted did was it kind of erased a lot of uh, rhetorical differences that w- previously had existed between, you know, left genuine leftists, so left wing people who ascribe to like an avowedly uh, left wing ideology, and just kind of mainstream conventional liberals, because mainstream conventional liberals radicalized their rhetoric to such a degree that they would, they were basically indistinguishable from from left wing. Uh, types who might have had a more kind of long-standing fear of you know the specter of, of fascism, um, so it was kind of a cohering uh, coherent, had this cohering effect amongst the uh, left liberal uh, coalition and in arranging themselves against, against Trump. Uh, but it is funny because I, I also saw that uh, Charles Booker uh, tweet, and um, I don't know if he has explicitly called Trump a fascist, but it would be uh, hilarious to claim you're opposing. Fascism by uh, rushing to the defense of the Espionage Act, which was you know first instituted to uh, stifle largely left wing uh, dissent against uh, World War One. By Wood did you Wilson. see that video
1: uh, the campaign ad of uh, this Booker guy um, where he lynched, lynched himself? <laughs> I haven't seen that. I heard I heard that that exists, but I haven't seen it. No, yeah, you can find it on on Twitter. He's, yeah, he's running it. for. The senator is like, you know, he's like how kind of a noose around his neck, and he's like standing by a tree, and I don't know what the what his point was. Like, no, you know, they're gonna lynch me or something. Well, he know. seems like a rigorous thinker. <laughs>
6: certainly is. All right. My, uh, well, uh, my theory yeah. is that, real quick, I'll just say that I think because the, the fascism stuff started from the quote unquote uh, real left, as they like to call themselves, not the liberals, yeah. but I, I, I think. I, I just think that they're a little bit jealous of uh, the, the I guess, the right in America because they, I th- I've always suspected they've always been somewhat jealous of January 6th. That's kind of a joke, but, um, and also uh, jealous of the, uh, I guess, the, the skepticism of institutions that the right has, uh, I guess, implemented in millions of people. Not, you know, you could argue, oh, it's just because of, Trump that they hate the FBI now and whatever, but hey, they got there so, well if, was, you, I think. if you spent <laughs> I think any time in to- uh
0: yeah I was going to say if you spent any time in Portland in two thousand and twenty, which I did i mean the um, the principal activists uh, forces behind that whole you know uh, agitation at the uh, federal courthouse that summer, they were actual insurrectionary. Anarchists, I mean, and they—it's not like they were bashful about professing their ideology. So, yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, those types would have had anything on principle against the idea of you know ransacking the capital. So it's uh, it's uh, it's funny to that for anyone who might have had like a sympathy for that protest movement in particular in Portland to uh, you know clutch their pearls at the you know, desecration of of the capital.
6: Yeah, exactly.
0: Thanks, though, guys.
6: I'll head out. But you, Richard, you got the best Twitter account. Man. Don't go off Twitter, all right? Uh, well, I'll, I'll be
1: there as long as they they let me stay on. Uh, <laughs> Twitter, uh,
0: Richard, definitely. Um, he's definitely definitely an object of fascination on, on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, even people in my uh, my personal life uh, go out of their way to give me their takes on uh, Richard's latest tweets. So it says something. That's-
1: that's great. Yeah, it's uh, it's very, very, very polarizing. I hear you know the entire spectrum about it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks everybody. And uh, you, know, as always, we'll reconvene soon. Bye bye. Okay.
1: See you. Bye bye, Mike.